So Paul is continuing a line of, of argument that he began in, at the end of chapter 1, where he started in, in verse 18 saying, first, the message that we have in the gospel is, is a weak or a foolish message compared to the world's standards. Because it, what, it, what the gospel is, is that, that the Messiah who came seemingly lost because he ended up on a cross, right? Like, that God's plan to rescue the world was actually through the death of his son. To the world's eyes, he would have come as a conquering king, one winning victoriously and demanding allegiance. And yet he has come as a humble servant. And he ends up on a cross, a Roman cross, and is crushed, killed, buried. Right? Like that that seems like a foolish way, right, for God to rescue his people. And so Paul begins in, in, in chapter 1 and verse 18 just saying, look, the message we have to the ears of those who are not spiritually minded is going to sound absurd. It, it doesn't seem like we win by losing. And then he continues at the end of chapter 1 and saying, and also, right, that the recipients of this message are weak. And so much of the Corinthian church was made up of those who, who were not haves, they were have-nots. He says, you, you aren't the wisest, you aren't the ones that have the most. And yet God has rescued you, that you've been filled with the wisdom of God. And so Paul continues this in the beginning of chapter 2 by saying not only was the message seemingly weak, not only were the recipients not, not strong or wise, but they were weak themselves, but he says, as the presenter, as the one who brought you the gospel, I too was weak. I too brought it in weakness. Look at verses 1 through 4 here. He says, and, and I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and in fear and in much trembling. My speech and my message were not implausible words of wisdom. Right? He, he's saying, like, look, I came and it wasn't impressive. It wasn't. And, and so what the Corinthians would have expected what they almost would have demanded was this like lavish, pompous, um, dramatic speech. And so what would happen is when, when teachers, because remember that people from all over the world are drawn to Corinth because it's this key city, they would come in and they would set up like lavish meetings and banquets where they would stand and extol whatever it was that they wanted you to know, if they wanted you to be a follower of. And they would do it with, with great oratory skills. And they would do it in lavish ways, and they would have a banquet and meals, and they were, what they were looking to do was to impress you and to make you be impressed with them so that you would say, I'm convinced. I don't know what this guy's doing, but I want to follow him. That's, that was the expectation. And so p- folks were often coming through Corinth and setting themselves up in this way. And so here Paul arrives claiming to have a message that is significant and important. And he goes, but instead of standing up with lavish speech and oratory skills and in pompous, impressive ways, he said, I was weak. And in fear and trembling, I presented the clarity and the simplicity of this message to you. Why? Why did he do it in this way? And why not go with the age and the expectation of the Corinthians? Look at verse 5. He says, the reason I did it this way 
was so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. He says, look, I wanted you to know that if you believe that what you were trusting was in the message, it was in the power of God, that it wasn't in my ability to convince you. It wasn't in my ability to turn your heart or to twist your arm to agree with me, but it was that God himself was speaking to you and was working and moving so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. And he goes, look, what's the proof that this happens? Right, he spent, he spent 18 months there. It's three years later. It's his second letter back to him. And he's saying, so how do I know it worked? Like, why are we even still continuing the conversation? Look at verse 4. My speech and my message were, implausible words of wis- were not implausible words of wisdom, but were in demonstration of spirit and power. The proof that there was power... The proof that God has worked and has moved is that a community exists, that they believe, that conversion has happened. So he says, look, I came and I did not do what you expected. I did not speak the way you expected. I did not do it in lavish ways. I didn't try to heap glory and praise upon myself. I took the humble message, right, of Christ crucified, a Messiah who seemingly lost and yet was victorious. And I came to you in weakness, and I came to you who aren't the best in the cream of the crop, and yet you believe. You're convinced. Like, God has converted you. He has rescued you. He has saved you. And you're still gathering, and you're still meeting. The proof that it's happened, the proof that there's power in the message was it did not, was not done the way that it was expected, and yet it was still fruitful beyond compare. You know, I, so I was thinking through this, Right, like the idea that, that conversion, conversion is a miracle. Because Scripture would tell us, Paul writes to us in Ephesians 2 and says, in our sin we are dead. We are dead to the, to, to the things of God. We're dead. And anything, something dead is brought to life, it's a miracle. Right? We, we think about this in a, in a hospital situation, right? If someone is, is coded and then they're brought back to life, then we're like, it's, it's a miracle. And so some will want to hold up the miracle of modern technology and medicine, and others will hold up the miracle of God, but all will say that's incredible that something that was dead has been brought back to life. And what Scripture describes is it says we're the enemies of God, and that we're dead in our sins, and we're dead in our trespasses. And so Paul says, I came to you with this humble message that's actually quite glorious, and I gave it to you in a humble manner, and you're humble people, and you're con- you were converted, like God rescued you, He saved you, He's made you his. And so some of you have incredible stories of how God has rescued you from dramatic, traumatic situations, right? The fact that you're sitting here this morning is proof positive that God saves. Because you're going, I was addicted, or I was hopeless, or I was enslaved, I was far from the Lord, I hated him, I wasn't just an enemy in scriptures, like I hated him, right? That's some of your story, and then others of you have a story that is significantly different. And you would, it's almost like a, it's a clean testimony, right? You're like, man, the Lord saved me as a kid. And I don't have a lot of exciting, like, transformation that's taken place since then, right? It's kind of where you would go with it. And you would almost be embarrassed or ashamed to say it because you're like, man, get someone up here who's had this, like, dramatic story. But do we see that in both of those stories, it exhibits power, and it exhibits like a miracle that one, God 
is able to save you. His arm is not too short to save. Wherever you're at this morning, if you are still breathing, no matter how far you are from the Lord, He's able to rescue you. He's able to save you. He's able to bring you to Himself. You have not sinned too far. You have not gone too far. You have not warred too much against Him. For others of you, your story of saying, Lord, the Lord was gracious and He was kind and He saved me when I was seven, right? And I, and I made it through junior high and high school. Like loving Him is a powerful story as well. It's powerful because our nature, our sin nature says, I want to live for me. I want to live for my glory. And so I'm either going to sin well or I'm going to live for my own self-exaltation in a, in a religious sense. And so if you made it through junior high and high school and college and you're an adult now and you're going, and the Lord really spared me from a lot of things, that is a powerful testimony that the Lord is able to do what he's called us to do, to live distinctly in this world. And so the hope for those who have a, dr- a dramatic testimony is the fact that when the Lord saves, he changes us. He transforms us. And so the power is that he can transform and he can also keep, keep us from going in the way that everyone else is going. There's power in salvation. There's power in our conversion. So Paul is saying the proof of this and the reason I came to you in this way, right, is because you have been saved. And I wanted you to know that your faith is in a God who saves and not in man who convinced you. I laid in bed a lot of nights doubting my own salvation, (laughs) Right, trying to figure out, like, did that guy convince me to do that, or did I do it because I was supposed to, right? Like, all these thoughts. And it wasn't until I just heard the Lord clearly say, you're mine, I've done it, that I was able to really rest, right? That it wasn't in my ability to pray the right prayer, to say the right thing, but it was that God had rescued me. So Paul then, what he does is he contrasts two types of wisdom. He's really been kind of knocking worldly wisdom, but he's going to bring in the contrast with godly wisdom. Let's look first at worldly wisdom. Verse 6, yet among the mature who who, we do impart wisdom. So he's going to, that's godly wisdom. Although it is not a wisdom of this age, that's worldly wisdom, or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away. And so the first contrast he says is, look, worldly wisdom, the way that the world kind of does things and the way that it runs, it's going to pass away. It is going to be, it's going to fall short. And one of these days it's going to be revealed to have not been as powerful and as strong as we thought. It's going to fade away. Because he continues, but we impart a secret in a hidden wisdom of God, which God has decreed before the ages for our glory. So you notice what he says? He goes that the wisdom we have is eternal, that God has given it to us from before the foundations of the world, that it's going to last. So the Corinthians were impressed not only with like eloquent speech, but also with how far back could you tie what you're teaching? Like how far back does it go? The further back it goes, the more powerful it is because it's like withstood. So Paul says, you've got a wisdom that's going to fail and it's going to fade and it's going to crumble. The wisdom we have in God is from the beginning of time and it will last eternally. So he's saying if you're really just wanting wisdom, which wisdom looks better now? The one that's going to fade or the one that's forever? He goes on, look at verse 8. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. So he says, look, the wisdom of this world led to the crucifixion of Jesus, right? Of stamping out those who might rise against him, of taking the things of God and crushing it. He then goes on in verse 13 to say this, 
And, and we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. So he says, look, the wisdom of the world is taught by men. Just men and women, like you and me. And so the contrast then is that godly wisdom is eternal and that it's taught by the Spirit. Look at verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. For the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. In verse 13 again. And we impart this in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit, interpreting spiritual truths to those who are spiritual. So he says, look, it's going to last forever, and it actually comes from God. It has divine origin. And so it's not just the creation of man or woman teaching you. What Paul is wanting us to get here is that we must have the Spirit if we're going to understand God. Right? That, think about this, right? Like the only way someone knows your thoughts is if you share them. And you can share them by, by texting them. You can share them by writing them. You can share them by speaking. Right? You can write a, a, a diary, a journal, and then have someone like look at it that you weren't wanting to share. Right? Like the only way you can share your thoughts is but you have to give them. You have to pass them on. Otherwise, they're yours. And so what, God, what, what Paul is saying here is that we begin to get the thoughts of God because we have been given the Spirit. And so only those who have the Holy Spirit given to us by God can then know what God is thinking. Right? For, verse 11, for who knows a person's thought except the Spirit of that person, right? Clear. Which is in him. So also no one comprehends the thoughts of God except the Spirit of God. And so he's saying, look, if you have spiritual thoughts, if you're understanding that this wisdom is actually a good thing and not a weak thing, not a foolish thing, he's saying that it means that the Spirit of God is in you. It's indwelling within you. And that you can know the thoughts of God because the Spirit of God is in you. That we have to have the Spirit to understand God. All of chapter 2 is is a beautiful picture of the Trinity, right? Right? That we see that the plan of God was always going to look foolish to the world, and yet it's actually strong and powerful, and it's sufficient. And that we see that it's Jesus who has come to work this plan out with his perfect life, his obedient death, and his resurrection. And then it's the Spirit who begins to reveal these things to us that says that, that Christ that was crucified, that's actually victorious. In his death was the death of death. Right? That sounds foolish to those who don't have spiritual ears. But to those who have the Spirit, you hear the death of death is in the death of Christ, and you want to rejoice. Right? It's why on Sunday mornings we can look out, whoever, if you're, if you're looking around the room or if you're, you're up here, and you can go, there are some who with like raptured attention are like soaking up the Word of God. And there are others who have eyes and hearts of indifference. Right? But you're in the same place, hearing the same sermon from the same text. And some it's with a, an attitude of slumber, and some it's with an attitude of hunger. What's the difference? It's those who have eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to understand, that have the Spirit guiding them, that we are dependent upon the Spirit to help us understand the things of God. And it's also hitting at our pride Remember, this is a prideful group who thinks that they can obtain wisdom. And he says, look at verse 10. These things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. You didn't figure it out. You didn't find it. God's revealed it to you. And then verse 12. Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit 
who is from God, that we might understand the things freely given to us by God. So this idea of that we don't find God. We don't figure this out. It's not that in our wisdom, I went on a pursuit and I figured it out. Praise me. But it's that God freely gives from His Spirit for, so that we can know Him and that we can understand. It is a gift, but it also strikes at our pride because it means that we're dependent upon God to teach and to reveal. So the issue that we've entered in 1 Corinthians that Paul is looking to still combat here is there's a lack of unity. Remember in chapter 1 that Paul is saying, look, some of you want to follow me, some of you want to follow Apollos, some of you want to follow Peter, some of you want to follow, like, you're all wanting to, like, faction out because that's the way of their world. That which whoever was the best teacher, whoever was the wisest, whoever did the most, I follow him. And so now I want to gain authority over you. I want to gain reputation over you. I want to gain power over you because of who I follow. And he's saying, no, 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 but we're one. We are the church. We belong to Christ. We cannot have this disunity in these factions. And so Paul is telling them here in chapter 2, the reason you lack unity is this. You're living by the wisdom of the world. And that's not the wisdom you've been called to. He's like, you're living like you're unbelievers instead of believers. He says, you're going, how do I find prestige? How do I find reputation? How do I find power? How do I lord it over someone else? How do I make sure I get mine? He goes, that's the way the world does things. That's the way the world has always done things. And I'm telling you, that wisdom is going to fade. That wisdom caused Jesus to be crucified. That wisdom is taught by man. And that wisdom is not going to last. And yet we have a wisdom from God that's put within us from the Spirit of God that's going to be eternal, that allows us to know the thoughts of God, and it's going to look weak and foolish to the world. So ultimately what Paul is saying here is this. You have this wisdom, but you're still living out. Your behavior still looks like the world. And what I'm telling you is this. If you have this wisdom, let's live like we have this wisdom. Let's let our right behavior or sorry, our right belief affect our behavior. Let's let the things we know about this wisdom and about God change how we're living. So he, he mentions, we're teaching this in verse 6 to the mature. Who are the mature? It's not that he's creating a hierarchy of believers. Instead, what he's doing is this. He's saying the mature are those who have been able to see that this wisdom from God actually affects the way they live. That it actually has implications for their life that they see that this belief changes their behavior. And so they live in this wisdom. Look at back at verse 2. Paul says this, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. So keep in mind, he's, he's been there 18 months. He spent 18 months there. You would imagine that he taught more than just the crucifixion. Well, so what's he saying? He's saying that it all goes back to the cross. That the way that we live, the way that we combat our sin, the way that our life, it's why here at Redeemer that we would say we want to be gospel-centered. That the gospel isn't the thing that saves us and we trip across that finish line and now we're good until the Lord takes us home. No, it's the starting place where we go, this changes everything. As I cross over this and I believe, I now have the Spirit of God in me. It's been given to me from God. I didn't figure it out. And now this right belief and this wisdom that sees what once looked foolish now seems wise and powerful. 
and now it changes the way that I'm going to live the rest of my days because I have the wisdom of God and not just the wisdom of man. That this is wisdom, is understanding that the cross affects everything. So, practically to the Corinthians, he's saying, you don't need each other's approval. You don't need the approval of all the speakers and all the powerful and all the wise in Corinth. You have the approval of God who has eternal wisdom because he has secured for you salvation through Christ. So who cares about their their approval? You have God's lasting approval because Jesus has covered you. He says, you don't have to fear the world's power. It's It's gonna end. It's going to fade away. And so when it looks like this nation or this um, type of government or this ideology looks like it's going to take over, he goes like, don't fear it. We win. They don't. He says, we don't need or have to trust or cave in to any powerful government. Right? Like that we have hope that is beyond that. We have hope in something that's eternal. And so whether the government's exactly what we want or exactly not what we want, it shouldn't really change too much because we have a hope that's lasting and it's eternal that's going to outlast any of these things. So the cross affects everything, right? We, we begin to look at our sin And as believers, when we continue to sin, when we say, wait, why? Right? Then we go back to the cross and we say, what is it that I think that I can get from this sin that God won't give me? And then we realize that Christ died for that sin, that he was crushed for that sin, and that he's called us to trust him and to know him and to love him. Right? It begins to take the power of the sin away. Because the penalty for it's already been paid, and the power of that sin is broken. We still live in the midst of sin, but it doesn't have to control us or enslave us anymore. Second thing is this. It's not just that the cross affects everything, right? It's that we look back then at how Jesus lived. And so Paul is saying, look, I want to be a good waiter, right, who walks out with the food and doesn't take credit for it because the chef is doing some incredible things back there. Right, that, that's, that's anybody who's in this pulpit on a Sunday, right, is doing the same thing going, don't look at me, look at this, right? Look at the meat, look at what he's done, look at what he's given us, look at how he's put it together. That we want to highlight Christ. So think about this, think about how Jesus lived. That he sought out the weak, the broken, the sick and the poor, the sinners, the wretched, the despised, He did not go after those who would impact his reputation, right? He went after those who actually harmed his reputation, right? That the political and religious leaders would look and say, man, you're hanging out with them. You're not who we thought you were, right? That Jesus wasn't concerned about their approval or his reputation in the eyes of worldly wisdom. He he saw something more, right? That he was there to restore things, to make things right, to set the course right. And so, when, instead of him gaining leprosy, when he touches the leper, the leper's healed. When he touches the dead, they live. He's saying, I'm in control. I have power. And the wisdom of God makes things right. And so, we see that he was kind and compassionate and comforting, that he was powerful and that he was humble, that he left the 
the confines of heaven to come and walk amongst us. Right? Like that, that Jesus changed things through his life. And he did not do it the way the world thought he would. He did not come in a palace. He did not come on a horse. He came as a humble baby born to normal parents. And then lived a, a pretty anonymous life for 30 years. And then didn't pursue the elite or the rich or the powerful. He, same hope, same message to him, right? But he came with a message of hope and restoration for all. And then we see his death that looked like a loss is actually victory. Because in it, it satisfies the wrath of God. So that this morning, for those of you who are in Christ, for those of you who the Spirit right now is just saying, yes and amen, yes, right? He covers you. And so when Christ, when, when God looks at you, He sees Christ covering you. You've been, you've been brought into the families, adopted sons and daughters. You are righteous in Christ. And so His resurrection proves some things. One, it means He's alive. And so this morning, your songs are being sung to a God who hears them. Two, it means that He's there to hear your prayers and to answer and to move in them. It was that He was able to give us the Spirit to encourage us and to comfort us. It means that His promises are true. It means that He's coming back. Look at verse 7. He says, But we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God declared before the ages for our glory. Right? Like he's saying, when he comes, he will come in the way the world expected him the first time. He will split the skies on a horse. Right? And he will come in in power and in glory as conquering warrior king. And everyone will know, yeah, that's who he said he was. Okay. Yeah, we get it now. And the wisdom of the world will fade, and his wisdom will be seen for all that it is. And some knees will bow in fear, and others will bow in honor and in respect and in worship to your king. So he's saying, which way are you going to live? Are you going to live as the world is living right now, or are you going to live by the wisdom of God, that he's coming for us? And and so we have hope in that, and that his resurrection also means that there's transformation. It's transformation. So Saul, who becomes Paul, was out persecuting, pursuing, throwing Christians in jail, and then he sees the resurrected Christ, and his life changes in an instant, and he becomes the greatest missionary the world has ever known because he saw Jesus in his glory. Then we see Peter, the one who seemed to bumble and was always saying the wrong thing at the wrong time, right? A little bit of a hothead, and then he sees in the transfiguration the resurrected, right? The glorified Christ, And he becomes a powerful advocate, an apostle, right? Writing books like 1 and 2 Peter where we see a very different temperament from him because he knew this was real, this was true. We see John, the beloved disciple, right, who wrote um, Revelation. And when he gets a vision of the resurrected, glorified Christ, he thinks, okay, this is it, I'm dead. And he was the, right, he would have said, "I, I like to lay my head on Jesus, right? Like, I was the apostle he loved the most. And when he sees the resurrected, glorified, he's like, you know, I'm done. I'm out. I'm dead. I can't survive. Why? Because Jesus transforms us. And because we see him only now veiled in part, and yet it's the Spirit who's saying, look at him. He's better than you think he is. He's, he's 
more beautiful than you think he is. He's more transformative than you think he is. He's more worthy of worship than you think he is. And the Spirit's going to do that for the rest of your life. And then for all of eternity, we're going to get to continue to delve into the depths and the wondrous riches of God that we cannot mine in all of eternity. Right? That should just kind of like blow our minds. So what Paul is telling them this is if we want unity, and I want you to live distinct in this culture who doesn't want you to be distinct, the Spirit has been given so that you can live like Jesus in a world that doesn't want you to live like Jesus. Like, that's the reason the Spirit has come, right? To live as Christ did, for His glory, not our own. And so we begin to seek out those who don't aid our reputation. We begin to love those who aren't loved. We begin to let people mock and humiliate and not approve of us because we've already gained the approval of God. Because we know in the end, we will be the one bowing knees at His glorious return. Because we have followed the wisdom of God and not wisdom of the world. That we're not concerned with power or reputation, but we want to reflect the image of God. And in that, people will see distinct behavior that has transformed us and that seems foolish, but they're going to ask about it. And because it's real and because it's powerful, they're going to believe. And then their behavior is going to change. And then others are going to say, wait a second, what's going on? And we're going to preach the same gospel, right? That Jesus is the humble servant king who lived the life we were supposed to live, died the death that we deserve, and lives today in power and victory. And they're going to believe. And it's not going to be based on the size of our church or the eloquency of which you speak, but it's going to be through the natural rhythms of your life, pointing to the glory of Jesus, and he's just going to reach in there and save people and transform them. Paul is saying, I want you to live by God's wisdom, even if you are called fools. And we live in a culture now that is going to call us fools, that is calling us fools. Look at verse 15. The spiritual person, right, the one that has the Spirit, judges all things. And what it means is that we're able to judge whether something is of worldly wisdom or, or godly wisdom. And he says, but he himself is to be judged by no one. Paul's going to later on explain he doesn't mean that we don't call someone on their sin. What he's saying is this, is that when the world says this is who you are, you're a fool and you're a bigot. And you're the, he's like, their judgment of you doesn't matter because you have the wisdom of God. And you can discern what is from the world and what is from the Lord. Look, there are so many implications for this text and this passage um, that I, I'm encouraged and excited that we're going to get to kind of work out this week in gospel community for what it really looks like to live distinct. Um, but this morning, if you feel these things making sense for the first time, it's because the Lord is revealing it to you. He's given you eyes to see, and he's saying, hey, this isn't weak, and it isn't foolish like the world says it is. It's actually quite powerful and quite glorious. That is from the Lord. It means he is calling you to himself and he is rescuing you, saving you, transforming you. If that is the case, would you let somebody know? Like, I think God is talking to me. It's a miracle. It doesn't deserve a polite golf clap. It is a miracle. We want to rejoice in that and celebrate that. Right? That, it, that if you would say, man, this seems foolish, you're probably still not even really listening, right? But if you're still at the point you're going, this seems foolish, then you ask God to give you eyes to see and ears to hear. 
But church, would those of us who are called according to his name and his purpose this morning worship a God who transforms and who has given us a wisdom and an understanding to live in a world that views things really differently? We have hope in Christ because of it. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you that, that you don't call us to be impressive in the world's eyes. You don't call us to be, to be wise or strong or powerful, to have a certain reputation. You've called us to faithfulness to you. And that we can be unified in you and we can live in a world that calls us fools, right? Because we have a wisdom that is eternal and will last forever. Jesus, thank you that for, for those in the room this morning that are saved, who, who know you, who are believers, Lord, that their salvation is a miracle brought only by your hands. Lord, would we celebrate it as such? And Lord, we would ask for those here that don't know you, that you would call them by name, that you would bring them to life, life abundant, out of death. Lord, thank you that it is by your simple message that you do this powerful work. We don't have to jazz it up. Lord, you are beautiful and you are kind and you are good to us. Would you be pleased this morning in Jesus' name? Amen.